G'day and welcome to Machinist Therapy Hotline, a podcast for machinists by machinists. And we just want to thank you for downloading this podcast. This is episode four. And in this episode, we are going to discuss how to idiot-proof programs, jobs that almost broke us, coolant and tool libraries. And as per usual, the podcast is hosted by Tony Closer. Hey there, folks. How you doing? Albert Radzinski. Oh, hey, guys. And Shane Paul. Hey, guys. How's it going? And of course, me, Jody Tuckwell. So, without further ado, let's get on with the podcast. Yeah, that's a good idea. So welcome to episode four, and uh, just to kick things off, I thought we should just have a bit of a yarn about all of the posts that we've been getting on the Instagram account. <laughs> what do you reckon, boys? It's pretty amazeballs, eh? It's pretty cool, man. I wake yeah. up every day to like hundreds of notifications. <laughs> they don't say, Boomer, you're a dick, do they? <laughs> it's like... 15 20 percent oh sweet <laughs> yeah no i just you know i think it's cool and it kind of breaks up the day-to-day of instagram you know yeah yeah and and totally. it's, it's cool for like a lot of us like i i can't show you know what we make and so it kind of gives me you know something something to post about you know because everyone posts you know oh here's you know this part i made or whatever um and I can't really do that. And I know there's a lot of other people that can't either. And yeah, so it, it's just, yeah, you know, kind of cool. You get a little more engagement and things. Yeah. Been really, I, I found it really cool just seeing other people's shops as well. You know? Like, yeah. No, that, you know, that was my favorite. The From where I stand. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, some people had some really impressive stuff. And it's, you know, they, they just. Uh, and again, a lot of it because of, you know. NDAs and ITAR and all kinds of other stuff, you know, you just see like these little snips of something like, you know, oh, here's a this tool I just got or here's this or that. And then when you see like a, you know, huge panorama of their shop, it's pretty cool. Very cool. Oh, well, that's the end of that one then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe we were going to talk a bit more about that one, but that's fine. Well, you um, want me to keep going? Well, why don't you, uh, so, so Boomer, why don't you kick us off this week with our topics, and what have you got? All right, so Bernard Holmes Precision Limited wanted to know about cunt-proofing jobs. And do you guys have a nickname for that process, and what examples do you have of things that have happened, and what cunt-proofing have you put in place to stop mistakes happening? So, uh, we're, we're kind of a bit different. Um, we make our own product. So what we kind of do is we have a, a, uh, computer at each machine and typically I'll get an email and it's and it, from, uh, engineering and it'll say, Hey, we just released this drawing. And so I'll kind of look over it and see if there's any tools that we don't have that we need and, and kind of look at how we're going to process this thing. And so then I'll start what we call just a process plan. And it'll basically say, you know, let's slug the material this long, um, hold it this deep. We're going to start with this side. You know, we're going to cut these features. Then we're going to go do this. And then we're going to, 
you know, take it to the mill and hog all this material out. And then it's going to go back to the lathe to cut this tight bore. And then it's going to, you know, and then it's got to go back to the mill to be finished. Um, Cause we do, we do some pretty complex stuff. So then I'll, I'll kind of just put notes in there, you know, Hey, this is why we're doing it this way. And it, and it kind of helps people understand. I think, you know, a lot of time it's, when you get a piece of paper telling you how to do something, it, it kind of takes you out of the mix. And so when you explain why, then it, it kind of brings them back into it, you know, and, and, and I, I think it, it makes it a bit easier for things. And so, um, once we develop a product, it's, it's pretty tightly controlled. And so once the process is in place, there's no deviation from that process. And so once we develop the program, and we run the first part and once it's in FA and it passes FA, then we'll go through and, and we'll make a whole tool list. And so it's just an Excel spreadsheet. And so we have the tab that's just like the gen general description of the different ops and everything. And then we have a lathe tooling tab and it's, you know, op one, op two, op three. And it's everything down from the station it's in to what it is and if it's an insert like i even put the edp number in there because we have a inventory controlled cabinet and so people can just go over there and type the edp number in and that's the only thing that'll pop up so that kind of takes the error out of that and you know you put the tool stick out and a description of the jaws and then the the nice thing about doing it digitally is once you do it it's always there um we used to do it on paper and then it would, you know, someone would spill coffee on it or something and get thrown out. And um, then you'd have to do it all over again. But the nice thing about digital is you can add tabs. And we even have like our quality department will add a tab, you know, when there's uh, if there's any sort of issue or they find some burrs somewhere or something and they'll they'll put pictures in there. And then that way, everyone, you know, from from then on. Well, no. Oh, hey, we had this issue. We need to watch for that. And so that's that's kind of how we do it. And do it, you and it, do you oh. find that the guys um, use the computers to their to the fullest as far as you know reviewing the notes and then going over them? And was that a gunshot? No, I was just killing an ant. Oh. Okay. <laughs> With a chonkla? Yeah, with the chonkla. Okay, so <laughs> my question my question was, do you think the guys use the computers out at the machines for, you know, uh see, you know, reviewing the notes and, and do they put their own notes back in and, and, and document any changes that they might want to make, or do you find most of the time when you walk out to check on them they're looking at Pornhub? Uh, so we actually, there, one of the tabs is job history. And if, uh, if it's a short run job and they're the only one who has hands on it, then I'll ask them, you know, Hey, just put, you know, a note in there. If it, if it ran great, just put, Hey, I followed the plan. No issues ran great. If it, you know, if you, if you find something else, put, you know, hey, here's something to watch for. Or here's something inspection found, or you know, really anything. And and uh, that way, it kind of we have that that established like history, and you can look back at it. And that's again the nice part of being digital. Nice. Do you is that like a a 
a specific program or is this just an Excel or? Yeah, this is just an Excel. And so the other okay. thing we do, um, once we've developed a program, um, and it's passed as soon as it passes first article, um, I'll tip, if it's a new part, I'll typically be over there for a couple hours and we'll just run some parts and, and I'll kind of tweak it and dial everything in. And then, we'll, you know, we'll look at tool life and other things and, and, and go from there. Cause my, my philosophy is always, you know, Hey, let's start out with a good part and then we'll, we'll try to see what we can get away with as far as speeds and feeds and cranking things up and trying to make time. But let's start out making good parts first and then go from there. Yeah. Then and optimize so, it. Yeah, because, I mean, you, it, it's easy to just plug in a bunch of numbers that are, you know, wide open. And then, you know, every tool chatters and everything's out of tolerance and stuff. And then you have to start digging from there. So I start out really conservatively, you know. And then that way I, I go with stuff that I know for a fact is going to give me a good part. And then we'll go from there if we can. Um, sometimes, you know, we'll have some weird bore like uh, on all of our parts we're not allowed a drilled surface so we we have to go in and even in just like a tapped hole we have to go in and take the drill point out wow yeah so i mean well you know and, and when you're talking a lathe part sometimes you got to get way down in there and you know cut this you know tapered angle to take the drill point out usually 60 degree um and so you have these wonky tools that you've ground on or you've had made. Um, AB Tools makes a lot for us. Um, you know, just specialized stuff to because it's it's how they want it. And fortunately enough for us too, the the owners they want every piece of every part that we make to be a piece of jewelry. And if it takes an extra 30, 40 seconds, a minute, whatever, they don't really care. And so, I mean, we'll, we'll do things that, that a lot of other people would be like, oh, that's stupid. Or, you know, oh, the block tolerance gives you a 64 RA on things that aren't specified. Just, you know, haul ass over that. Who cares? But that's not really how we do things. Um, it sounds pretty so, ideal, to be honest. It, it sounds like you, the way that you guys are kind of cataloging your job setups and stuff is r really super ideal i mean to me from my ears it doesn't sound like there'd be a whole lot i'd want to change not to mention mm. i mean i guess the only question i did have is let's say you're making like a, a new part or something like that or you're doing something that's that's new to your experience because it sounds like a lot of your process planning comes from your experience base basically because you're like oh you know we don't deviate from it once we've got it you know our process plan in place so, like, you know, what if it's something that's kind of outside of your comfort zone? Uh, nothing, nothing is really set in stone until it passes FA and then we make good parts, you know, and it repeats. Right. Um, and so one, once it, get, it does get to that point, then I'll send a copy of the um, program to a, a drive that's on my computer me and paul sanchez are the only ones that have access to that file and so it goes in there and then it's cataloged by the 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 part number and it, it's like our part numbers kind of break down it's the year 
and then the project number and then the actual part number. And so we'll catalog it in there and it's all rev controlled. And so once it's done on the machine, then the program is just deleted off of the machine because we already have a copy of a known good program. And right. so when that job comes back around, if in if there's been no rev changes and it's the same, then I'll just copy that program back onto the machine so that that master is still there. I think it sounds to me like th this is is as structured as it is because of the the nature of your business. You guys have your own product. Yeah. And you're and it, and effectively it's, a manufacturer versus like a job shop where it's a little bit different. Yeah. So, and, and we kind of run the, the, the whole spectrum because we'll do, you know, just one or two pieces of something. And, and when you do one or two pieces, sometimes you never really get it dialed in. And sometimes it's, you know, I have two pieces of titanium and I have to make two good parts. And so you're just really conservative on everything and you don't take chances. And, and, you know, sometimes you, you fight both parts the entire time and then you get a good part and you just leave it at that. And it's, you know, next time and I'll leave myself notes, Hey, maybe try this next time, maybe try that. And you know what, if it's one or two parts, Maybe just fight it again and get it done and, you know, ensure that you get those two good parts. And so, you know, it's like I'm running a part right now and I'm like, it's got 2832s in the face of it and I'm sitting there thread milling them all. It takes a long time, but I'm only making two parts. And, you know, if I break a tap off in there, then then it's, you know, it's all for naught, really. Right. Uh, just on the on the spreadsheet thing, when you're talking about, you know that that's you know that's really a, a, a great way of cataloging your setups and tools, etc. Uh, we do a similar thing, but what I found is, you know, as you progress further and further and further down in the history of all the products that you're making, that if you suddenly then have an improvement in tooling, let's just say, that to change it is a absolute pain in the arsehole because it's not like just one little button and then it changes every single setup sheet that you've got because you've decided to improve a grade of cutting tool or whatever so we're we're sort of looking at uh, databasing instead so you know you have one particular tool and you say it's associated with this product line and if that product line has an improvement in it then you can just go right righto and it will change the whole lot and that's yeah. sort of where we're at now. Yeah, and and we have we have like families of parts as well that are that are you know just scaled differently yeah. or, or whatever. And so you know that is an issue because we'll make you know one and and we'll get something different. Uh, we've got these inserts now, and and we're roughing three sixteen at like seven hundred and fifty surface feet. Um. And they hold up really good. If if you go any slower, really, they don't hold up. It's kind of weird. Um, but, yeah, we, we'll run, you know, it's like then once once you change something, it's like like 30% of everything that comes along, now you're changing that too. So so it is like a whole process. And what you, I, I what see you what do? you're saying there. What do you do, Tony? Do you... Do you just, I know, you know, you're, you're setting up a lot on the machines, but when you do have a few guys come in, do you, 
do you have setup sheets and they go right you got to follow this or what what's what's your protocol yeah I've, I've i've you know coming from a couple different job shops I've, I've learned that and we've made our own at my place too but uh uh, setup sheets are key. Uh, like you put a lot of information on them. Uh, you got a folder, a hard copy. I mean, a lot of places, like I think this is going back years, you know, where people would say that Boomer programs like their grandpa, and, and I'm right there with them. <laughs> but uh, I, a lot of people believed in hard copies back in the day because shit could get fucked up on a computer real fast or deleted or overwritten by somebody that thought that they would do something better on the night shift and then download it to the hard drive and this, that, and the other. But hard copies were cool with dates and the check edits and this kind of stuff. But uh, I was going to talk on this. You know, One of the shops that I worked at when I first came into an Akuma house, I had a, a guy that uh, was really smart, and he, he taught me a lot of stuff. And he, he taught me how to cover my ass, too. And nine times out of ten, um, when your setups are going to be done on days or they're going to be dialed in on days, you know, on critical parts of production runs, because one, you got the bosses there, the senior inspectors are there, the majority of the crew is there, and you're going to have a night shift come in and basically keep, I mean, I'm not saying there's not talented people on nights, but the, most of the nights are there to get the machines that you've already got set up dialed running and keep them going and get the parts pumped out. And yep. so when yeah. I w was there, the guy showed me, you know, we would get our program set up. We'd get our first article bought off and we would run them and run them. So we would take that program on the Kuma and once it's dialed in and the night shift guys are coming, what we would do is before we would go home, we would take our program and we'd stash it in bubble memory zero. So it would be there in the, in the hard drive with all of the computers programs and all the rest of the shit that it keeps on its own. And unless you know how to go and get it out of bubble memory zero, no one will ever know the wiser. And uh, so we would put ours in there at night, but leave a copy of it on the, on the MD1 for the guys to run, you know, on their own. And if we came back and there was any edits that were made without anybody saying anything to anybody, it would be obvious, you know, because it would be two different programs. And so that was pretty bulletproof or cunt proofing or whatever you want to say, but one of the things that we also did was we had hot rod our day programs and uh, we would them stash them in bubble memory zero and then let the night guys run their, the ones in, in the MB1. And our parts always came out a lot more parts per shift versus the night and they could never figure it out. And everybody just thought they're fucking awesome. like comfort being so like on our horizontal, um, we have like this family of parts that we do like some dedicated production on and it, it keeps us like fairly busy. Um, but like we'll we'll do like little things like we'll throw in like a pallet check or like tool breakage and stuff like that. So like if an operator loads up a pallet and pulls up the wrong program, it's gonna alarm out like right away. Um, or like you know we'll do tool breakage just so that tool breakage detection. So like we don't have to scrap a whole pallet of parts. Like if the tool breaks, the machine just stops or it can switch to an alternate. So. Um, just little stuff like that. Our setup sheets and stuff, though. I mean, man, I'm really considering revamping that stuff now after hearing what you had to say, Boomer. Yeah, and like I said, once it's and so we also um, we have the p permissions all controlled. So yeah, only that's me, key. Only me and Paul can edit them. And so what they'll do is they'll the guys will make a copy of the template 
or or I'll put the there there's one folder that they can edit out of and so if if I've kind of made you know like a bare bones one at my desk I'll put it into that folder and then they'll pull it up and they'll make their edits and they'll save it in that folder and then uh once it's all proven out and it's all dialed then it gets cataloged into how we break down our part numbers like I was talking about earlier year project number and then part number and then once it's in that folder, nobody else can edit it. It's just cool. a read only. Yeah, that's cool. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well. Thanks, Boomer. That was awesome. Um, yeah. Nick, <laughs> I think that sort of should lead us a little bit into jobs that broke us. That'd be you good. do. Dun, dun. You do, do you? <laughs> I sure do. All right. Well, I'm going to take this question from at Broken Trace. And like he had said, have you ever had a job that made you want to quit being a machinist? And I believe I posted that pic of that little bastard part that I um, had some issues with. And at the time, I was... Um, Currently pretty slammed running two shifts on some of the larger parts for the same company, big valve bodies, square and round both. And so I had some buddies that um, actually it was a shop that I worked at years ago. It was a screw machine shop and I hit them up and asked them if they wanted to quote it. And then I also hit up a shop down in Southern California. I believed it was called A Plus Precision. And, uh, they instantly got back to me and no quoted it and I asked them why and they said that it was uh, difficult internal features that they were not going to be able to check. And so then at the other shop that I sent it out to for an RFQ, that the place that I worked at, they said, oh, sure, we can do it. And they quoted it and the, the price I turned in, their price, and, and they so they got the, the part and and they were going to make it. And I said, well, okay, well, the order's for like 500 pieces. But before we get rolling on this, I mean, I'm going to provide the material. But we, you need to give me five first articles, five of your best parts, because I have to take them, bring them into my shop, measure them, mic them, do a first written five-piece first article, and then turn them in. And so they, in turn, did that. They did their five pieces. They sent them to me. I took a look at them. And just started measuring a few of the features and then looked at them under a scope. I don't even know if they had a scope, but I could see where they had started sanding in some of the diameters and trying to, you know, break some of the dimensions with sandpaper or scotch bright or something. So anyway, I got on the phone and, and called the supervisor, which was actually still a friend of mine today, and asked him what was going on with these parts because this is not something that I'm going to put my name on and turn in because one, there's some features that are out of, you know, out of print, but two, they just look like shit. And uh, he told me that the guy worked on them and did the best that he could, and that uh, if the well, I needed something better than that, then they weren't going to be able to help me, and so um, they weren't going to be able to help me. Because and then Hillbilly Hank was born. Exactly. So this, like I said, was at a time where I had two shifts going. And uh, there was really no room to squeeze these parts in. And this part came out of quarter inch 316L. And it uh, had broached on one end and drilled through and reamed at a 43 plus or minus one through the whole length of the part and then a taper down to that the 70 thousands at the mouth it was a bell mouth bore and uh 
so I decided to do it. So I started out with some stock, and I I did the the first in. I threaded it and drilled it and bored it, and then parted them off. And then I put a spud inside my collet and uh, actually bored out some e pads, and then put a spud in there. Then drilled and tapped that spud, and then screwed these parts into it. And did the second op, which I drilled them and I broached them and. The only way to get them out, luckily, was that I broached them. I got it was like a 964, so I was able to take them out with an Allen wrench. And so I did five samples of my own and checked them out, and they looked pretty good. But there was really no way for me to check that intersection where the the taper went down and it was called out. Um, it was so small I could cut one in half and try to sand it and look at it on a comparator. But you know the thickness of the line on the comparator itself would. I mean, and I have a nice comparator too, but still, you're you're kind of shooting in the dark. But I made five, and uh, you know, I bought a PH horn boring bars that were super small, and uh, they did a nice job. But I touched them off on the face, and I bored a hole, and so I knew that they were cutting on size. And then I just trusted my program as far as X and Z, and going down to a taper and to a known distance in Z, and to the diameter that I had just drilled and reamed, and uh, did five, and uh, I, luckily for me, these were going down to Parker Hannafin, and I had uh, acquired a pretty good relationship with the two senior inspectors down there, and I knew they were going to be down there on a Saturday, so I took my parts down there, and uh, I kind of had, you know, like I said, a little bit of time had gone by, and we became pretty close, and so I could come in there on a Saturday and give these guys these parts and kind of do a mock trial of a, a first article on some features that I was unsure about. And uh, it, it it was a pretty good relationship, and and so I I told them that this is the one feature that I'm having a hard time checking, and uh, he goes, well I'll show you how we're gonna do that when you're turning your real ones, and he took some tube out of his drawer, I'm not sure what it's called, but it's a little pink kind of paste that he mixed two substances together, stuck it down in the bore in a hole on a toothpick, let it dry, then pulled it out, and put that on the comparator. And I said, we're going to go off of this freaking silly putty that we just put down into this hole and, and pulled out and looked at the comparator. And, uh, well, sure as shit, he checked it. And it was it was like right on the money as far as you could tell by looking at this glue that he stuck down in this hole. But that's how they were going to check him. And so I proceeded, went back home, turned in the first real first five articles and, uh, and it got bought off, but not only bought off, I got a phone call that said that these were the best ones that, that they'd ever seen. And uh, so I was rewarded with the sister part on that, too, which was a little bit simpler. It had a bigger hole through it and a, and a bigger bore. Rewarded. And so, yeah. It sounds like they're a pretty good customer. <laughs> they, they were, and they are still. And, uh, you know, that, you know, going off on a little mini tangent here, uh, you know, relationships with inspectors whether they're in your direct shop or whether they're with shops that you do work for that are outside um it's something that an older guy taught me you know it's you need to go out of your way and uh be a little considerate and uh, just you know you know whatever you want to do if you if you're working with the people that are in your shop and you go out and buy them lunch maybe once a month or what have you it's it's good to get on a level playing field with them and not walk into their room and treat them like they're the enemy and you're going to show them that your parts are good and if they have any issues that's they're them checking them wrong i mean 
it will behoove you to meet them halfway all the time. And, uh, it's, it's a good relationship to have. And, uh, I've been told more than once, you know, my, my, my quality and, and the finishes that I've turned in, you know, have been and exceeded what they've been looking for. And, uh, it ultimately ended up for me in that company was a lot of, you know, a lot of my parts that I did for them still today are 10, seven RAs and boards and on faces. And, uh, it got me signed off on the approval to just go dock stock. So when, you know, I did first articles and they checked out good, then they didn't go into QC anymore. They went straight to second ops down there and then they started porting them accordingly. And, and, uh, yeah, it was a good relationship to have. So, that job didn't break me, but it was definitely a defining moment, and I worked way, way, way deep into the late hours, and I kind of leaned on a couple of people that I thought would be able to pull this off for me, and it fell through the cracks, and I had to do it myself, but uh, yeah, that was one of the toughest things that I actually came across thus far. The end. What, what about you, Boomer? Uh, I've, I've done some pretty wild stuff that, uh, was, was really, on, stay, stay on topic, stay on topic. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, this one time in Tijuana, <laughs> yeah, I was Juarez, bored, so I went and whittled down a piece of wood into a butt plug. <laughs> I said, I'm bored. Come join me. <laughs> um, I actually, I had this part and it was one we were kind of BSing about on Instagram the other day. And, uh, we sent it to like 12 different screw shops and every one of them no quoted it. And, uh, <laughs> I even sent it to Tony and he's like, dude, I'm slammed. There's nothing I can really do for you. And he doesn't um, quote anything. And, and it was Fuck like, uh, bus just ran me over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was a, it was a nitronic 60 part. It was this little tiny shaft, and it had all these grooves and profiles on it and things. And sounds like a butt plug. Eh, pretty much, uh, but it no, it was for a uh, it was for a solenoid valve, and like every surface on this thing was an eight RA. Um, every every diameter was like plus or minus five tenths, and uh, I think the biggest diameter was like two thirty something, and the thing was like three and a half inches long. And uh, we just have, I mean, you know, uh, lays with 10-inch chucks. That's all we have. And, uh, and, and I even, like Tony said earlier, kind of like a defining moment. I remember that, saying that to a text in him. Well, you know, I'm going to have to do this by myself. I feel like it's, you know, a defining moment. And he was like, well, I'm sure you'll do it. You know, figure it out. And um, I came up with a process for it, and I was able to make it. And, uh, it, it was, you know, it was, again, it was, I was there probably 20 hours one night, um, before I got my first piece into first article, cause they kept breaking off or they would, ch I mean, one littlest bit of chatter and, and it's done. You can't sand it out really. And, um, and then the, the second off was we had to hold on a, on a less than ideal surface and there wasn't a whole lot of surface area and we had to on the back side, we had to radius the back and then, and then put a couple flats on it. Um, and I got it done and they wanted like 12 of them and I, I was able to get it done, but it was just kind of one of those things that it was like, 
man, I tried every trick I'd ever heard or seen. And, uh, at the end of the day, it was just, I mean, it just ran like painfully slow, but we were able to get them. And then, um, the, the customers actually bought the, bought the valves and then they just said, Oh, we're, we're going in a different direction. And they, they basically just scrapped them all out. Wow. So that, that's, that was kind of irritating. Cause it was like, wow. I was really, that was something I was really proud of. And it was, you know, it was kind of weird cause you make this little teeny tiny shaft and then you walk in the next day and you know, you got like a, a 20 inch long, 10 inch diameter piece of titanium you've got to work on now. And it's just like, kind of I, I remember walking in and they're like oh we need we're gonna run these next and i just kind of laughed because it was you know kind of total, total opposite. opposite yeah total opposite ends of the spectrum and you know i had uh like i have pretty good vision but i had i had some uh not loops but just kind of that like you know that dumb visor all the inspectors or the old guys wear i had one of those on for like a couple days <laughs> just 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 when you went to the toilet you're aware that there's not 20 hours in a night, right, Boomer? Oh, I'm aware there's not 20 hours in a night, but I was there 20 hours straight is what I meant. Ah, okay. Like I, I didn't uh, leave. You, what about you, Albert? Were you, you, you've had a job that's broke you? Uh, like financially or like morally? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, might, I guess sometimes I go hand in hand, but. Uh, I was gonna I say more morally. I was I think morally, I was... morally, yeah, yeah, morally. I was thinking like, I guess when I heard the question initially, I thought they meant like financially, and I did have something come come to mind right away. But I mean, I guess the financial ones will kind of break you morally too. Mm-hmm. Um, we had we've had some challenging stuff. I don't really think it's been anything like stuff that Tony or uh, Shane's done. Because uh, you guys work on some pretty crazy stuff, but I, I think that like every part that a shop handles or gets, generally speaking, poses its own challenges. Whether that's like an insane quantity, or like maybe some super tight tolerances, or like a surface finish requirement, or or, or something like that. There's there's always a challenge to whatever it is that you're working on, um, even if you can't really, I don't know, like put it on paper. Um, I think probably the one that sticks out the most uh, was kind of like a financial challenge, um, sort of. But it did it did kind of did kind of mess with my head. Um, it was pretty early on when I started my business. I was doing work for this company, um, and at the time they were like my biggest customer, and it was great. Like they they were sending me stuff like constantly. Um, and they sent me these parts. They had they had already turned the blanks themselves. And they're they're pretty large. They're like forty one forty, probably about eleven inches in diameter. And basically, all they wanted me to do was drill like a couple holes in it. And I think I feel like I told you guys this story before, but you did. Yep. So I mean, I don't know if I should continue and, and tell you the continue. story again. But I mean, basically, what I was adding to this part was a very small dollar value of you know, what the part was. And they didn't give me a CAD file. They just gave me a print, which was unconventional because they usually gave, gave us CAD files to work with. Um, 
And there was like a there was a bolt pattern in there, and I interpreted the drawing incorrectly, and I drew it wrong. And they received the parts in, and they didn't say anything, and nothing got flagged in inspection or anything, so they weren't even checking what I missed. But basically, the angular spacing between two of the bolt holes was different from the rest of the bolt holes, so it wasn't like a symmetric bolt hole pattern. And it wasn't until uh, they were... It, you know, one of their customers was trying to like utilize one of the parts that they could, uh, that they figured out that there was an issue here and they were just fuming mad. And I mean, that right there, I think should have been a warning sign because I mean, since then I've worked with customers and we've made mistakes on stuff. And generally a good customer is willing to work through you with something. Um, the bad ones are the ones that will fly off the handle, you know? Um, but at the time, you know, this, re this represented like a pretty substantial dollar value of inventory for them. And, you know, I was, I don't know, maybe like a year or two into my company and there was no way I could just pay out of pocket for that amount of money. Um, so we ended up like coming to an agreement basically that I would completely remake the parts and I would pay for as much of the material as I could, which I think worked out to be about half. Um, and you know, I did it, I made good on it and you know, they kind of, they kind of fizzled out after that, but they were, you know, I think that was for the best. I, I kind of look at customers like that as being like a, like a stepping stone to something bigger. You know, you're, you're gaining, you're gaining a lot from working with somebody like that. You're, you're learning about, well, you're gaining a lot of machining experience, but you're also gaining a lot of business experience, um, just in like, you know, dealing with customers and, and dealing with with situations that are less than ideal, I guess, cause, cause that shit's going to happen no matter what industry you're in or, or who you do work for or whatever. And it's, it's really about how you choose to handle that stuff. So in that respect, it was, it was valuable, but it was super stressful at the time. And, you know, this is one of those moments where you just kind of ask like, well, why the fuck am I doing this? You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I, what I'm, what I'm getting from this is, you know, uh, from most of us, it's you. You know, you're not having jobs that necessarily break you, but they they challenge you so much to the point where you think, "Oh my God, I am not going to be able to do this." But however, however we manage to do it, you do actually get it done. You know, that's, that's, that's that, yeah. that is a there's a big difference between. You know, there's a, you know, there's, I'm not saying there's a lot of other people out there that are doing machining, but there's quite a, I've seen quite a lot of guys that go, they throw their hands up and go, this is impossible. You can't do this. And, and I don't think I've ever come across something that is impossible, you know, like whether that yeah. be, whether that be that you end up, uh, I think Albert, you hit on it, you know, you, you, you communicating through with a customer. And if there's a, if there's a feature that, you know, that, might be able to be moved you know to make it work then that's the way you get around the challenge i mean that's that's ideal um but uh, i've certainly had jobs that have come through and i've gone fuck yeah i can do that i'm amazed balls don't you worry about it and then and then you suddenly get it in front of you and you go oh here we go i might have been <laughs> up more than i can this morning. <laughs> I yeah I, I had that moment last night actually with a job but yeah, that happens sometimes, you know, if you miss something when you're quoting some work yep. or whatever. I mean, 
I don't know. I guess the way I like to look at it is like you win some, you lose some, and and hopefully you end up winning more than you lose. Um, well, obviously, none of that's totally ever happened to the four of us where we couldn't pull it off or get it done, or we wouldn't be so cool enough to do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I like, gotta, uh, actually, no, I'm just going to say that the, the most recent one for me was the you know, I'd, I'd said that we could drill this 800 millimeter hole at 28 mil diameter. Oh, we I remember gonna, that one. Uh, and and <laughs> I, I told, you know, I'd, I'd quoted this job and then suddenly it was there and uh, it was just everything that was, I was almost at the point where I was going to say, I don't think I can do this. And I've <laughs> never, ever, I never, ever got to that point, you know, and like when literally I was, when we were drilling this this bit of material and the gun drill was wandering like so much that it actually drilled at at 750 mil deep. It had wandered so far that it drilled out the side wall of the bar. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And then when I pulled it out, I went, I didn't even think that was physically possible, let alone like you know, anything else. And uh, but. But default, I don't know whether it's just a bit of luck or whether it's just the 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 gods are overlooking the four of us. But yeah, you pull it out. You pull it out of the hat. You suddenly go, okay, I remember this one time that not at band camp, but this one time when there was uh, I saw this guy do this one thing, and I thought, right, it's almost like last ditch effort. And then, fucking sure enough, boom, in it goes. And I just and it and it. And it worked. And then I still had all the other complicated stuff to do. But uh, at the time, I was like, oh, this, this won't be that hard. But that ended up being the most difficult part of the whole job. Stop the podcast. Hey, Boomer, what's all this photo a day challenge on our Instagram account about? Oh, this photo a day challenge. It's, it's getting people to show what they don't typically show. And we get kind of a... A more in-depth look at you know what people are dealing with every day wow and how do i get involved you post a picture based on on what the uh the graphic that we have posted dictates you post for that day and you tag hashtag mth 2019 boom sounds great okay let's get on with the podcast Yeah, so this dude, JLD, JLD Tool, he, he had kind of like two questions. One was, well, I guess it was like two or two or three questions wrapped up into one here. He said, how do you guys store your virtual tools in, cam, in your cam systems? Do you have preset surface speeds or chip loads for drilling? Or is everything entered into a calculator? And if so, what calculator do you guys use? And then the other part of his question was, do you guys have community tools to share among the shop? Or... Does, is everyone required to have their own tools? And if you if you do share stuff, how do you get people to respect the tools? Um, I guess I'll start with the, the cam system side of things. I think a lot of that is kind of based on like what cam system you're using. Um, every cam system is obviously going to do stuff a little bit differently, but also like it depends on what you're making too. I mean, if you're doing like a a simple like two axis lathe part or a three axis mill part a lot of times like 
you don't need to generate anything very complicated for like a, a tool library. You know, I think the biggest thing is that you're, you're concerned with on something like that is going to be tool stick out and that, that stuff's all job specific. So like to model up a, a specific tool with a specific stick out for like a three axis mill just seems kind of asinine uh, in my opinion. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe that helps some people spatially visualize what they're doing. Um, but I think that some people maybe have an easier time doing that stuff without necessarily needing to, you know, model something up. Um, I think where that really becomes beneficial though, is when you get into this more complicated stuff, like what Shane was talking about, where you've got a machine that's capable of basically anything and you've got more axes than, than Hank can count. Um, then there's a lot more going on. Um, so like, for example, uh, we use Hypermill and they basically, they take a, an actual CAD model of the machine that had, it, it is literally the machine exactly as it was sent to you. So you, you buy the CAD model of the machine from the manufacturer and that gets imported into Hypermill. And it's, it's, it's kind of like, like complete almost uh, where you're doing kind of like a verification in the cam software. So if you're doing like some more complex tool paths or movements or you're tipped up at 90 and you want to see if the headstock is going to hit the machine or if you've got enough tools stick out to reach certain areas, like then that stuff all of a sudden starts to become very relevant because like, for example, in Hypermill, I mean, you can, you can check tool shank clearance. You can check uh, holder clearance. You can check. Uh, you can add a model of your spindle, like the nose of the spindle, and check against that. Um, and that's super handy because I've done some funky stuff in there, and without without being able to verify that or see what the actual tool length is, that it, you know, you're effectively flying blind. Um, so I, I, for me, it's really relevant, and I know that. But Shane, you probably you think that shit's for a bunch of pussies, to be honest. Uh, you know, like you said, it has its place. Um, like I, I I've seen recently all these guys and they post, oh, you know, uh, helical tools. You can import the the tool library into, you know, your your software, and it, it's like, I don't know, the software. It's just an end mill is just a cylinder in there, yeah. typically, you know. Yeah, drill like, is just a point. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, as we've gotten kind of deeper into it, um, like in the Integrex, obviously we have, we have all our turning tools in there because those are just all like stock tools. Like those right. don't ever really come out. Um, and so, and you know, you have some that work at, at, at uh, B zero, some that work at B 45, some that are at B 90. And then you have some neutral tools when you're, when you're doing B axis turning and things. And, and so when you when you get all that stuff moving around in there, it is really beneficial. So Esprit works kind of the same. Like we have a, a simulation model of the machine um, from Mazak, and and so I can I can look at it in there, and you know you can build your if you have some funky jaws or whatever, you can you can build those into there, um, and, and really you know see like you said exactly what it's going to do. Um, I didn't yeah. realize. That you Does, guys um, used oh, can, I, can I just ask? Can I just ask a question? Um, yeah. yeah. 
isn't the point of say downloading a tool from a specified supplier that when you do so and it goes into your library that if you're going to then use that tool it you know you you have parameters in there saying you're going to run you know 316l or you're going to run some bronze or whatever and and it's already predefined to input that information into your coding or or not yeah yeah, yeah i mean i think that there there's some relevance to what he's saying about um saving like some preset surface speeds and feeds and stuff like that i mean it, it can be relevant depending on what you're doing but like let, let's say for example you you model up like a quarter inch drill and you put it in your tool library right and you've got this quarter inch drill that you're going to use for aluminum and you save some speeds and feeds in there that you know work well now you got a job and you need a quarter inch drill and you're going to be drilling into stainless and maybe you don't do a lot of stainless, so you don't really need to like create another tool. You know, you could just modify the speeds and the feeds for that one particular job in your in your cam system. Um, you know, I, I guess it, I guess it, a lot of it depends on like the structure of your shop too. Like, you know, Shane, you were talking about like saving EDP numbers of of tools, which is, I think that's great because then there's zero confusion between like yeah. the programmer and the setup guy or the operator, like you could literally hand off a sheet or, you know, whatever, an Excel file of your setup stuff to an operator or, or a setup guy. And, and they know exactly what they need to put in there, you know? So it doesn't yeah. matter that it's a half inch end mill that has seven flutes and it's for stainless. Like the only reason that having maybe like the flute numbers would be relevant is, you know, for calculating chip load and stuff like that. But, um, you know, th those should be like relatively easy edits to make. Um, yeah, and the. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, you're good. But it, it's also it's so setup dependent. Like, well, you know, it you're never holding two parts the same. You never yeah. have you know the 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 same um, work holding on things, and it's you know even if if you dovetail everything. You, you know, a block of aluminum that's sticking above the jaws two inches is going to run a whole lot different than a block of aluminum sticking above the jaws four inches. Yep. You know, and then it's, you know, aluminum's real forgiving, but you start getting into um, some of these weird alloys and things. And it's like we run this material A286 all the time. And to meet the spec, like the nickel content can, can vary like up to eight to nine percent. That sounds fun. And so, I mean, you'll you'll run one lot of material, and it just runs like a dream. And then you'll switch to another lot, and you're just fighting it the whole time. And I mean, even even like you know, you can get into that with three sixteen or nitronic or three hundred four, or you yeah. know, even some of just the those generic stainless steels. But when you get into some of these weird alloys, I mean, it's always different. And so it's always. Again, like I said, I always start out to where it's like, you know what? Even worst case scenario, I know this is going to work, and it's going to yeah. give me a good part, and then I can go from there. And and just from yeah. programming by hand for so long, you you kind of learn all those. You know, you know right where to go to it. You know, I, you know, as as far as his question about the speeds and feeds stuff, like I think a lot of that is experience based. You know, yeah. like. You know, if I don't, even if I don't know something, 
the first place that I'm going to look is I'm going to talk to the manufacturer. A lot of a lot of the manufacturers, they're pretty good with their speeds and feeds. Some of the manufacturers, I you know, I want to find out what they're smoking when they publish some of this shit. I think they just want to sell yeah. inserts, but um, you know, generally, like you know, you know who's got their shit together, basically. Um, and again, that comes from experience too. You know, uh, you know, like sometimes you try surface footage and you're like, well, fuck, that didn't work for shit, and uh, you know, I need to try something <laughs> different. So, I mean, you guys they, remember me, Wade? I was going to say, does anybody remember way back when they used to have to go to the machinist handbook and they would say carbide runs at this speed and high speed steel runs at this speed? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've all got that book, haven't we? Yeah. I wonder if anybody uses that anymore. Yeah, but it, it's still, like I said, it's you, you hang that, that bar out of the spindle another inch and it's completely different. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's always it's setup dependent. Point. Setup dependent. Yeah. yeah, very setup dependent. But you know, some of it you you have to. Yes, you can crutch on your experience, but you've gotta you've gotta use some common sense too. You know, like like you said, Shane. Like if you're hanging a bar out, you know, like five inches from the spindle, like you it that's not really like an ideal setup, and you should you should kind of understand that. And if you don't, you're fucking retarded, and you need to consider a different career. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean just like use your use your head with this stuff like yeah I, you know, oh, I, don't, I don't know that is how they roll in Chicago that's right <laughs> so anyway there's a guy that used to work for Albert that's not looking shot. for a job right now <laughs> what was that someone playing golf you, you it's know like champ- champagne you try to always keep things as ideal as you can. So if you have the ability, if you have the ability to run a shorter tool and you're not, you're, you're fucking retard. Yeah, you're an idiot. Yeah, yep. Fucking stupid. Oh, dude, the R word. Easy there. Full retard. <laughs> oh my god. Wow. That's where we win. Bastards. <laughs> just, just on uh, the, um, just, just on the tooling like as not like as in a, a digital library but a, a physical library i mean that that was part of the question wasn't it like yeah a computer tool library tool. or whatever yeah. yeah i think jody's best to speak on that one because he's dialed yeah yeah so i went you know went through a whole process of uh looking at uh, of course uh, my shops or our shop is is quite different in that it's you know it is a high volume it's it's production based and we talked before about you know you can make one or two parts and 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 you got to you, know, you can take your time to do that which is great but when you suddenly still got to hold those kind of tolerances and do it in you know three thousand ten thousand whatever batches then you know the, you really have to dial in your processing now one part of that was when we were changing over setups you know, it used to frustrate the hell out of me that, you know, one person could set a machine up within, say, like an hour, and then it takes another guy three, four hours, and it's the same job. And you're going, why, why the fuck is it bloody, how can it be that much different, you know? And, of course, it's always a person dependent, but when you've got 
we, we just try to simplify everything so much. You know, the quick change uh, jaws in the lathe down to the quick change tool in, in the machine. And then we went a step further and said, righto, from now on, you know, we will always only program in this particular way from, you know, chuck face out, turret face in, and uh, there will always be like uh, set reference points that will never change. And by doing so, it meant that when we decided to start implementing a communal tool bank, um, when you're talking about uh, your EDPs, like this is to the point where it's like tool number 36, for example, might be an 18 mil C4 Capto uh, uh, U-drill. And it will always be that on, on every single machine. So if suddenly someone says, oh, you need to go get number 44, you don't even need to know what tool it is. They just need to know that it's number 44. And, and that, like, that, that meant that our setups went all the way down to 15 minutes for proven jobs. And an unproven job would take about 30 minutes for a setup. However, the flip side to that is that you can be you, you then become quite restricted in uh, particular jobs that you're suddenly planning to put on the machines that we've currently got that on because, you know, gauge lengths are always going to be the same on particular tools. And, you know, unlike like if you've got a, your standard lathe where you suddenly go, oh, I want to I pull the boring bar out another 10 mil, you, you don't have that option. You either go like what you were saying there before, you, you know, if you've got, you, know, you want the shortest one possible and then the next step might be too long, in which case it then can't go through that, that bank of machines that we've done this like tool library for. So there's, you know, there's, there's ups and downs to it. So you can't prove it basically. <laughs> yeah, I was going to add it to that, but I thought, oh, well, we're going to talk <laughs> about tool libraries anyway, but yeah, yeah, we've, I've literally, so my, like the setup sheets now on these machines it is literally like this. Like there are, I've got two columns. It's the same deal at the moment. We still print them out like as in an, uh, an Excel spreadsheet apart from it's got turret one, turret two, and it'll have the, the tool station numbers. And then it will just say the, desica the designated tool that needs to be put into that tool station. And it's, it's literally as simple as that. So the guy goes over, he has his bit of material. He has to put the jaws down at, you know, five mil from the top of the, from the top of the chuck, it puts that in, and then it says, right, you've got to put tool number 15 in tool station one, you've got to put 114 in tool station two, it's so on and so forth, and you just click, 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 and then he starts single blocking, and he's ready to go. And then you just hit the button and go have a poo. Green button, hit the poo, and come back to glowing embers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what what went wrong with that boring bar picture you had the other day of it semi erect? Did you oh, just say the... semi erect? <laughs> semi. And, uh, semi. I was thinking of, maybe I was thinking of the other post that he made was that today. I like that you're way hotter <laughs> on the mic when you just say, "Are you semi erect?" <laughs> yeah, he got fucking way excited, didn't he? It's midnight here right now, man. Give me a break. I'm in my underwear. All right. All right. Wow. Are they titty whities? <laughs> Wouldn't you know? So to answer your question, Tony, yeah, the what actually went wrong on that post that I put on my account the other day with the uh, with the drill that was basically bent over like a sloppy cock. Yes. Um, 
So the what you don't see in the picture is that the collet chuck that's holding the bar has, you know, it has this uh, this rubber membrane that sits in front of the collet to stop all the shit going inside it. Right. And so when the guys set it up, what they what they had done is they'd used the wrong size rubber seal to go in front of the collet. So as we're we're running this short chipping material, you know, over time, all those chips are slowly going in between the parts of the collet until the point that when it went to clamp, it doesn't clamp. The bar comes out and boom. Yeah. Shit on me. Yeah. So as much as you try to idiot proof things, Idiots will still unproof them. <laughs> true. That is true. <laughs> it's amazing. But like I said in the thing, like actually, when you do that, it's, it's actually kind of cool because, well, it's not cool when people fuck things up. But what it does is you start testing. You're, you're continually then having to improve how you're doing it. But like this, this gap between the skill level of what you want someone to have and the skill of what used to be is – is massive now, you know. You've got a lot of guys coming in that go, oh, I've run this machine for a, a fucking 10 years, but all they've ever done is just, like what I've described, they've put things in because of a sequence that has been put in place by somebody smarter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hear you, man. A question came in from prototype underscore machinist, and he says... Um, uh, I'd like you guys to have a good conversation about coolant mist and air quickly in workshops. I believe most shop owners are putting their workers and themselves at risk of some serious lung issues later in life from breathing coolant mist. My partner studied biomedical engineering and is currently at med school. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, I love this industry, but I'm thinking more and more about leaving it because of the health risks and the frustration of watching shop owners buy million-dollar machines but then won't spend the extra few thousand plumbing uh, and exit for the mist extractor out the roof of the factory. I hope this guy doesn't vape. Uh, (laughs) Well, one of the comments, while we're talking about this, actually one of the comments down there says, I've got this great one where the guy was complaining about mist and then goes outside and chugs on a durry like an hour you know jeez he sucks on a fag <laughs> well a dari is a cigarette yeah oh yeah, no basically. what a fag is too i don't know what a fag is what's that shut up <laughs> <laughs> and boomer pops out in his in his leather underpants but <laughs> um so i i wanted to sort of i thought maybe if i before we jump into modern day machinery, if I kind of zip back quite a wee bit, I, I actually, um, I, I spoke to a few people and, and of course, you know, went on a Google search and uh, for machinists back in like the thirties uh, up to say the fifties, uh, one of the biggest problems was cancer of the scrotum, if you believe so, like, you fucking made that I'm not. I'm making that. No, up. no, that's re- that's real. Actually, I heard that if you're too big yes. of a bitch, you'll get scrotum cancer. <laughs> so, so, 
like so these guys will be sitting by the laves and they'll be in their like their overalls and the culets just kind of like throwing over onto their overalls and they're sitting there having a fag or a durry or a, a, a cigarette or whatever you want to call it and yeah yeah sure as shit like later on in life you know they go what's wrong with my balls oh shit I got scrotum cancer because the coolant was just resting on my nuts for too long. So oh there. my god, that's so fucking gay. That is not possible. You gotta have balls and steel if you're a machinist. What the fuck? Clearly, those guys were machinists. No, so so yeah, so you know things started to improve, and they started to put a few little sort of covers there, and people thought, oh my god, I don't want to cover myself in coolant. So, Wait, they do. Uh, they start. They, they start wearing nut cups, Joey. Yeah, that is That's a good idea. I That's gotta smart. go to work. And then, and then people started buying coconuts and putting coconuts down there. <laughs> That's pretty smart, actually. Like, if you think about that tool spinning, if it's down at nut height. Something like, like you never know. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be careful, man. I tell you, you gotta protect those things. And then you'll uh, be the guy on the warning sticker near the yeah. end of the spindle. Yep. Yeah, but instead of the spindle, it would just have coolant splashing on your balls, and you gotta cover them. Wow. Anyhow, so, so you fast forward a wee bit more, and and at this point, you know, the lubrication development had improved, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And, and also, just, you know, we fast forward now into, like, the 70s and you start getting into, you know, guarded areas for your machines. And I know we talked about this before, but ignore that part. So, you know, the, the, coolant, the coolant now is not getting on, you know, old Joe Blow and he's happy as Larry. He's like, sweet, I'm, I'm nice and clean. My, my nuts are great. And, <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> and things, are, things are looking up for me right now. This is fantastic. And now... Fast forward into modern day machining. We are really can... fast forwarding. <laughs> I fast... Oh, I need to fast forward a bit quicker. So I feel like forward... Buck, Buck Rogers. <laughs> so you fast, fast forward. We're fast... <laughs> we fast forwarded, and Hanks, Hanksterfers has made a new additive to rub right on your nutsack, and we are all good. <laughs> I feel like that, I need a dury now. <laughs> So anyway, you fast forward and uh... <laughs> warp speed, <laughs> and you then get to the modern day machines that are like running at twenty thousand RPM, and now the coolant isn't coolant, and it's it's now atomized. So it's like you're turning the coolant now into an aerosol. Gosh. And I think this is where, like, what. Well, prototype machinist i believe is sort of getting at he's saying well you know when when spindle speeds were at six thousand rpm or ten thousand rpm you know they they were still basically in their sort of liquid coolant form of course there's evaporation which is what your mist extract is for but once you start getting into high spindle speeds and it atomizes the coolant you know what what effect is that going to have because that's a completely different ball game you're then talking about potential lung infections and, and, and other things that could happen if you're not ventilating correctly. And I, I kind of see what he's saying. That's, you know, is it do, like, do we do it? Is it a known problem that we, you know, like there's no known cases of people that have suddenly dropped dead. Well, well like from, 
well, I don't know, the, the aerosol of the coolant, I don't believe. But, you know, it could be that in 10 years' time, it's accelerated compared to what it was back in the day when you found out 30 years later you had cancer of the scrotum. Yeah, go, Sorry. Tony, go. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, anyhow, when I was working at the job shop down in Santa Rosa, we had four Akuma LT10s. M's running stainless steel square stock uh, 316L. We were running Hankster for his oil. We discovered that when you struck that stainless steel with carbide tooling with oil engaged, you made a lot of smoke. Yeah. We smoked the place that pretty good. So we did have the proper, uh, you know, smog hogs installed. Uh, we were vented out the roof, and then we also put in a doghouse fan on the ceiling where we had like four fans just sucking and creating fresh air and then our roll-up doors we put vents in them too so even with the door shut the fans had a, a where they could draw through and push out and so we had a pretty good filtration thing going on and so but there was a few times you know when it was 105 or whatever that place didn't have ac we would get smoky and smelly and that type of shit in there well we had a younger guy get fired. He was a disgruntled employee, and sure shit, about a week after he got fired, he called the EPA, and they came oh, in and said, we, ha we had a complaint about the air quality in here being harmful to the humans that were forced to work here, and that there's several times that they wish to open doors or turn fans on, this, that, and the other, and it was not you know, happening. So this guy, this little Oriental guy came in and he brought in these things on necklaces. They looked like, you know, like what Flavor Flav would wear, Flavor Flav would wear on his neck. We put it over our neck and he came back to my department and he put one on me and he put one on another guy. And he goes, I need you guys to wear these for about three or four hours. So anyway, we sat there for like three or four hours and these little meters would take in the air around the machines that we were breathing. They monitored it super close. And he stood back there with us to make sure we did take them off and put them somewhere else. And he had a clipboard, this, that, and the other. Anyway, about he stood up about five or six hours. And then uh, he took the, the meters off of us and read them. And he went to this guy came and he was doing an honest EPA survey because of the complaint. And we're running four Akuma machines. We're running Hankster's oil. We're cranking out stainless. We're making smoke. He monitored us. He took his notes and he said when, at the end of the day that the air was worse outside the shop than it was inside the shop. And so there was no harm actually being done. Wow. Yeah. Hey, that's interesting because we've got um, like, well, I mean, we're actually going to do an air quality check in our shop next month. Just, just because, well, why not? You know, and um, yeah, I'd be quite interested to see what the results are of that. I think that'll yeah. be that'll be real interesting. So um, we did one a while back. Um, we we put these uh, like air scrubbers in. They're basically just like these big boxes that just draw in air through filters and then spit right. out clean air and there's there's like a pre-filter and then there's like this weird like bag filter thing and it's specifically for oil mist we've got six of them in there now um we've got mist collectors on all the machines we're not piped out the roof we just have like the royal filter mist and when you really get going on something like you'll see <laughs> that filter mist just kind of dumping 
It's basically sucking the smoke out of the machine and blowing it out into the shop. Exactly. I had yeah. one of those too. I'm like, what the fuck is this even for? <laughs> so we actually, we did a, a test before we got the air scrubbers and then we put those in and then we waited like three months just so everything could normalize and everything was fine. And then we did it again. And, um, so we actually have a, a, a class 10,000 clean room on site too. And to get to it from the shop, you go through three different doors and they, they were seeing this like film on the outside of the clean room. And so they took some like wipe samples and it was actually coolant mist from the machine shop making its way over through three separate doors to the clean room. Wow. So, I mean, that just tells you, you know, where that stuff can get. Um, but mm. they took some air samples before and after. And the, the, we actually got dinged on the, uh, the only thing they said was alarming was on the, on the sample before on one of the sensors, because they put like 12 different sensors in the shop. Mm. One of the sensors tested high for uh, particles. And it was like uh, aluminum oxide. And it was someone was scotch brighting the shit out of something. You know, in a speed lay and then just laying into it over there. And that that was the only thing that that uh, showed up. And then. So when we had the test done after we got the air scrubbers, we actually tried to. Uh, um, like exaggerate that, you know, the scotch brighting or whatever. And and the, the test all came out out fine. Um, the one thing I will say, though, is is I definitely have like a, a sinus issue. Um, I yeah, constantly me- have shit like dripping down the back of my throat. Gross. <laughs> and I'm always having to like clear my throat. Oh my, my wife, God. Ha- my wife hates the noise and, um, Fuck. like it, but it, it, it's all, it goes and goes and goes. And, and I've been to the doctor and, you know, they're like, Oh, maybe it's an allergy. Maybe it's this. And so they put me on different allergy pills. Not nothing makes it go away, but when I take a week off and I'm not at work, it goes away. So, yeah, wow. I mean, it's, it's definitely doing something. Yeah. Um, because I'm, it's, in, I'm I mean, in a similar boat. I'm a similar boat. Yeah. How are your guys' balls, though? <laughs> Strong and long, baby. Nice. <laughs> Strong, long, and like King Kong. Boom. No testy cancer there, huh? Not that I know of. Yeah. Okay. I Too scared to get it checked. The, I wonder if it affected the the women machinists in a different way. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I Maybe don't someone know. can chime in. <laughs> it's not going to be me. He's back. Just, <laughs> don't forget. DM us at Machinist Therapy Hotline. Exactly. <laughs> oh well, is it, I think that's it, eh? You're not going to talk about your sinus problem? Oh. Oh, I could if you want. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to. I, I put myself out there for the whole, for the whole. Oh, whole, so and then you just go, yeah, I'm in a similar boat. Anyways. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the sinus boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've all got boogies. <laughs> no, uh, actually, yeah. In a, yeah, on a serious note, I, I, I too have a 
bit of a sinus problem as well, Boomer. And... Admitting it is the first step. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Jody. I have a sinus problem. <laughs> no, the, I, I get that, that sort of, you know, gunky stuff down my throat. And, uh, Whoa! I saw the video. I did. I no, I know. It was like all the coolant is like, I can't wait to get it in. <laughs> but... No, like so you said, in, you're in trying all... to tell us about this sinus problem, and you dumping coolant on your face. <laughs> hey, hey, bitters, bitters are quitters. Bitters are quitters. That's right. That was the best comment. Uh, they... <laughs> I honestly, I I also have this. It's just an ongoing. It's not like it's not like you've got a big runny nose and and all the rest of it. It's just. It's just a little uh, gradual thing, you know, and it's yeah, it's continually exactly. there. And then, and, and I'm the same when 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 I'm at home, and you know, I've been at home for say three or four days. Then it, it it's just you can see it's just basically dissipates. It's 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 almost gone. And then you get back to work, and it slowly starts to come back again. And uh, there's got to be something in that, you know. I I agree. There's there's, uh, but I don't. I also. To be honest with you, if you were really, if I was really, really that concerned, yeah. I could, I could wear, I would could wear a, I could wear a gas mask around, around you work, know, you know, <laughs> I, you you know, know I could look like the crazy elephant man or whatever, but I, but I don't, I just go, oh, well, cause I still love the smell of coolant. However, right. like, but yeah, it, it's probably doing something to me. It's the same as, you know, that there's, even though you love the smell of petrol, you can't just stand there and just constantly smell petrol all the time. Cause eventually it will do something to you cause it's carbonogenic. Well, you can if you want to, and you know what? If you didn't want to go to the shop and smell coolant, and you were really concerned about yourself, and you weren't the stud that you were, then you'd go work at the library or the Whole Foods store. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, see, I was gonna say something along those lines. Like this is pretty voluntary. Like exactly. If you're, that, if you're that unsatisfied with it, or if it's that big of a deal to you, that's kind of part of comes with the territory. I mean. I'm not, I don't know, I'm not trying to minimize it because I think that it's a real thing for sure. I mean, you need to do things to try to mitigate it as much as you can. But like at the end of the day, you know, like you like the way race gas smells like, yeah, oh yeah, it's not good for you. But, uh, you know, I'm going to sit there and fucking smell it. So yeah, awesome. Exactly. Yeah. It's an associated risk. It's an associated risk. I I mean, uh, like every trade has associated risks, right? Yeah, yeah look, so, at, look, at, look at porn stars. Yeah. Because <laughs> then you get syphilis. But no, I... Could, I no, I mean, you could break your dick in half. Could you imagine that? <laughs> That's a real hazard. <laughs> there could be a tear anywhere. <laughs> you could break your dick in half. You're right. Yeah. Uh, so just to summarize, I think what you're saying is uh, to answer prototype machinist's question... You're saying he should basically quit. No, well, we're saying we're saying okay. You gotta you gotta look deep in yourself, prototype machinist, and you gotta say, um, <laughs> do I want to keep doing this? Am I a stud muffin? Am I gonna come to work and just breathe this shit and cope, or am I gonna move on to Whole Foods, basically? Yeah, or librarian. I mean, yes. I, I think you look at it and you're like, you know, what measures can we take to to improve the conditions? And, and as long as you're doing that, I mean, you're never fully going to get rid of it. 
is basically what it comes down to. Yeah, but he's an employee, right, Boomer? So he can't do much about it. Yeah, be that's up right. To yeah, that's years. true. No, he, he's, he's saying he's frustrated with, you know, the, the you know, buying these super expensive machines. And actually on that, like, cause, because what you're saying is these, these exhaust systems on some machines or some exhaust manufacturers will work. And you're saying some are uh, almost like they're just there for sh- like for show ponying. Yeah, oh, I mean, ro- the yeah. royal filter mist. Like, exactly what Boomer says. The first machine I put in there, I start hogging. And I'm like, yes, it's sucking it out of the machine so nice. And then it just threw it right up in the shop over my head. <laughs> yeah, you wow. can watch it come right out of there. <laughs> yeah. And like, then you the went, fuck? well, good job. I'm a stud muffin. I'm going to shower myself in mist. <laughs> Rub it on your balls. And those things are like twenty five hundred, three thousand dollars too. Yeah. Yeah. And it just yeah. it just blows yeah. it right out into the that's shop. Pretty, I mean that's pretty frustrating. If it the, is. So I, I had to go to Home Depot, buy a thirty dollar fan, roll the door up and just blow it outside. <laughs> that's a, that's what they should do. As part of your like if when you go to purchase a million dollar machine, you should say, You can also have an exhaust system or a thirty dollar fan from the warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's frustrating wow. there's there's ways to do things i mean like boomer shop it sounds like it's done nice because one they have the misters on the machines and then they have the scrubbers that are in the shop and that that'll definitely knock it down more than the average yeah. thing on the, just the machine for i sure. agree totally yeah and i mean before we had those like you would see the the if you were really going on some stuff you, you'd see it kind of hovering in the air and now, like when you, um, before we got mist collectors on everything, you'd open one of the machine doors after you'd just been really going for something, and then you'd see the mist come out, and then that that air scrubber would just pull it all over there. Um, That's so I mean, cool. they're they're working. That is cool, and it, it works. It, it it circulates the air in the shop uh, real well too. Does that heard, work uh, work pretty? C systems do kind of the same deal too. Like if you've what got an that? air conditioned shop, if you've got like an air conditioned shop, I've heard that they kind of do the same thing. Yeah, so we're air conditioned too, um, and we have to change those filters all the time. So oh they, man, they'll just they be like dirty. wet with stuff. And yeah. I mean, you know, and so we have the mist collectors, and then that blows it into the shop, and then the air scrubbers suck it up. But like I've I worked at at Tony's for a little bit, and you know his it goes right out the ceiling. It's real nice. You open the machine. I mean, there's hardly anything. I mean, you get the that sweet, sweet hangster for a smell, but I mean, you're not, you know, just getting it all in your face and up your nose and everything. But mm. his not. system works well. Yeah, it works pretty good after Taco Tuesday, also. <laughs> uh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> I mean, that's really what you installed it for. It was. You yeah. want that gas out the ceiling for sure. <laughs> Although I, I am, I am known to cup it and have a good old whiff. And oh check that I'm producing God. some good stuff. Is that how you guys do that <laughs> yeah. down there? Yeah, they bask in their own ambience. Yeah. They marinate in it. <laughs> I just waft around in my lovely poo smell. It's fantastic. <laughs> you gotta enjoy your own. Oh, brain. actually, no. What? They, what? What is it? The Dutch say they go. Oh, someone says like. Yeah, have you ever heard of a Dutch oven? Yes, I have. That's when you fart in bed and then you you pull it over so you keep yourself warm with your fart. Yeah, no, <laughs> well, that, I think that we don't... pretty much all know that. Well, that's good then. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow! 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 Albert, 
Way to poo-poo poo poo on his shit. joke, Al. Yeah, yeah, yeah shut, shut, shut down. Parade, down. Uh, yeah, Jody, shut the fuck up. <laughs> So that is the end of episode four, and thank you to Tony Closer. Later. To Albert Rigzinski. See ya. Boomer. Thanks for listening. And me, Jody Tuckwell. Until next time, thanks. Bye-bye.